Thank you, gentlemen. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much. And uh, the uh, California Heritage Quartet. <laughs> I, I like it. Hey, man, y'all cut a record or something, you know. Well, you tell how old I am, you cut a record? Who ever heard of <laughs> Half the congregation don't even know what that is. Thank you, gentlemen. That was beautiful. You can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39, and we'll be there in just a second. I want to make an announcement. Dr. Miller will remind you of this in the announcements, but I want to let you know that we're having the Discovering Gospel class tonight, 6 o'clock tonight in the banquet room. I'll be teaching that class. And this is a class for people who would like to join the church or if you just want more information about the church. It, it go, going to this class doesn't obligate you to join or anything like that. We're, we're going to give you a lot of information. Nobody's going to be put on the spot. Nobody will be embarrassed. I'll do most of the talking. You can ask me any questions you want. And you don't have to say a word if you don't want to. And uh, you'll come and gather this information. I like to say, come to this class, and I will tell you everything you always wanted to know about Miss Karen. So... <laughs> So come and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you about Miss Karen. I will tell you a little bit about our lives and how we met and got married and so forth. Uh, so it's a very casual and uh, enjoyable class, 6 o'clock. And there's a sign-up sheet. Now the reason there's a sign-up sheet is because there is, uh, we've got some literature we're going to give you. We need to know if you know, 10 are coming or 15 are coming or just a few. So... Uh, uh, sign up when, as you leave today. The sign-up sheet will be on the uh, table in the lobby at the Welcome Center. And uh, just uh, put your name on there. And if you forget to do that, just come on anyway. But uh, sign up if you can, and then we'll know how many to make the literature for. All right. Look at uh, chapter 39. We're in this series on... Uh, Joseph, and as I'm calling it, uh, go back one, gentlemen. What happened? We started in an odd place there, didn't we? There we go. Uh, the uh, molded by the hand of God. On every, on every page of the story of Joseph, you can see that he's being molded by the hand of God. And if we are perceptive, we can see on every page of our lives that we're being molded by the hand of God. When we pick this story up now, you remember Joseph, his brothers, his ten older brothers hated him. They treated him with great disrespect. Then they decided to kill him. Then they thought they'd throw him in a pit and just let him die on his own. Then they decided to sell him to some Ishmaelites who were traveling towards Egypt make a little money, get rid of him, and make a little money too. So they sold him into a life of slavery, which they assumed, many slaves died young, but they assumed he would be a slave for the rest of his life and uh, maybe even die young. And so they sold him. Now that's where we pick up the story in uh, chapter 39. By the way, that was chapter 37. Chapter 38 talks about... Uh, uh, Judah, and, uh, which is one of the older brothers, and how sinful he was and how sinful his children were. He had two sons so sinful God himself took their lives. 
And, uh, but we come back to the story of Joseph here in chapter 39. Look at verse 1. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him uh, of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph. There's the key to the story of Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Even though he went through tremendous trials, the Lord was with him, and he walked close to the Lord. And he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the good singing today. Thank you that we can love you and love each other. And may we grow to love you more and more and love each other more and more, we pray. We thank you that when we go through the great difficulties of life, and some of them are life-shattering, that you are with us. We can trust you. We thank you for that. Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Dr. Bill Bright tells the story of a time when he was preaching in Washington, D.C. at an international Christian leadership conference. And he was contacted by a man he had been in college with many years before. They had been fraternity brothers, and they had been on the same college debate team. This man now was a naval commander uh, in the U.S. Navy. Now, those of you who are not Navy people may not know what that means. I didn't. I had to look it up myself. Uh, there are 26 ranks in the Navy, and the uh, top three ranks are commander, captain, and admiral. So he was a commander. He was of the top three ranks in all the Navy. Uh, and he was married and had some children. And he asked... Uh, Dr. Bright to come visit he and his wife, and he did, and they had experienced a great tragedy in their lives. They had a son who had died tragically in an accident. They, of course, were heartbroken, and Dr. Bright shared with them the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And... Uh, they both, Dr. Bill Bright would write, both this my friend and his wife invited Jesus Christ to be their Savior and Lord. Christ came into their lives and changed them, and they experienced wonderful peace and began to grow and serve the Lord. That's not the end of the story. Several years later, Dr. Bright was back in Washington, D.C., and he was speaking at that international conference again, and he went by to visit his two friends that he had led to Christ a few years earlier. And he found out that in those years between those visits, they had had another tragedy take place. They had a young daughter who had a rare form of cancer. And they had taken her to every kind of expert, had every kind of treatment, everything money could buy, and she still 
passed away. Dr. Bright writes, this couple loved their daughter deeply and dearly, and they were heartbroken that she was gone. He said, but I will never forget that day what he said to me with a warm, understanding smile, he said. And now I'm quoting the, the naval commander. He said, though I do not understand it, as dearly as we loved our little girl and as much as we hated to see her go during the time of her illness and after she was gone, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ was very real. We do not understand it. But through it all, we had a peace that passes all knowledge. A peace that passes understanding. Wow. I can't imagine losing one child. Can you imagine losing two? The Lord was with them. The Lord was with Joseph. That's what gave him his strength, his courage, his peace. The Lord was with him. Dr. Bright then writes, Tragedy, heartache, and sorrow will come into your life. But Christ, the Prince of Peace, waits to sit upon the throne of your life to give you his pardon, his purpose, and his peace. Wow. Sometimes the Lord uses tragedy to bring people who don't know him, to bring them to salvation, to bring them to Christ. But those of us who know Christ, he uses adversity to draw us closer, to draw us near. Look at the screen again, and, and here's, I just put some good biblical reasons God allows adversity or things he uses adversity I'm not going to spend much time here I'm going to go through them quickly but I want them to kind of be on our minds as we go through the text today one is to draw us to draw us close to himself to draw us into intimacy a lot of us Christians are just kind of out on the fringes you know we're saved we're going to heaven but we're not living too close to the Lord adversity is to draw us close to him to teach us there's a lot of things we will never learn until we go through adversity to strengthen us. So we find our strength is not sufficient, so we learn to lean on His strength and trust Him for His strength to use us. We would never meet some of the people that we meet unless we were going through adversity. And they see our peace and strength in the midst of adversity, and it's a testimony to them. It certainly was in this story of Joseph. And then to conform us, to conform us into the image of Christ, or to use the word I used in the title, to mold us, to conform us, and make us more and more like the Lord Jesus. There's a great verse here in, in Isaiah 45, 3. The children of Israel were going through terribly difficult and dark times. He says, and God speaking through the prophet, I will give thee the treasures of darkness. That is, there are some treasures we gain in our lives when we go through times of darkness. I think Joseph had those treasures. He was a prosperous man, the Bible said. He didn't own a thing. He was a slave. How could he be a prosperous man? 
He had spiritual treasures that he found in the darkness. And hidden riches in secret places. That is in that secret place that where we commune with God and we know the Lord is with us and we fellowship and commune and yield to his lordship. And in that secret place we find riches. That, they mayest, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by name and the God of Israel. Or to say, I'm the God of the Bible. I'm the one true and living God. And I've called you unto myself. And I want you to know me better and better and better. There are some things we just learn in the darkness of adversity. Well, in this chapter 39, it, there's some phrases that's going to be used concerning Joseph's relationship to the Lord. Uh, it says the Lord is with him four times. That, as I said, is the key. He's with us. If you belong to him, he's with you. But you've got to acknowledge that, and you've got to commune with him and trust him through the adversities of life. And then he says he made him to prosper. Again, he prospered. He didn't own a thing. He didn't prosper in any kind of material way. He prospered spiritually. Everything he did, God blessed him. And then he gave him grace or favor. And then he blessed and he was a blessing. And by the way, some of these things are tied into the person of Potiphar or even the jailer, as we'll see in a few moments, the warden of the, of the prison. And, uh, but they were uh, from God through these people. And then he showed him mercy. Now, with that said, let's go back and look at our text. And it says, they brought him down in verse 1 from Egypt, from uh, Hebron, or you remember, actually, he was coming from Dothan. That's where the pit was. And they brought him down to Egypt. Can you imagine what Joseph saw? That, that trip was about 250 miles. It would have taken about 20 days, maybe more than that, for many of the people would have been walking and some of the wagons and camels would be laden down with heavy loads of merchandise. But it took a long time. We know from Psalm 105 that, that uh, Joseph was in irons on his legs and around his neck. This was not an easy journey. But somewhere in that journey, and, and I'm speculating here, so don't hold me to it. I'm speculating. Knowing what the Bible says about Joseph, knowing the things that, that are said about him, somewhere along that journey, I think, after the shock wore off, that his brothers had done this despicable thing to him. And he was going to, sure enough, be a slave for the rest of his life. I think he determined in his heart that if God allowed this to happen, and he knew that the Lord was with him, that he would be the best slave he could possibly be. And that when he served his master, whoever that turned out to be, and when he served his master, he would really be serving his ultimate master, which was the Lord. Though he had never read Romans 8.28, 
we know that he believed it was true because of the comments he made in chapter 50. He believed God was working all things for, a, for good, for a purpose beyond our understanding. And so he came down and he saw wonderful sights. I, the pyramids, you know, there's some speculation, some people have speculated that maybe the, the Hebrew slaves during that 400 years built the, uh, the uh, pyramids. But the pyramids actually were built about a thousand years before that. Some had even speculated that maybe Joseph built the pyramids to keep the grain in. But again, the pyramids were a thousand years prior to that. So when Joseph, I mean, this was taking place, uh, you know, 2,000 years before the time of Christ. This was taking place 4,000 years ago, this, this story of Joseph. And the pyramids were already there. That's a pretty remarkable thing, isn't it? So Joseph coming in in that caravan would have seen... Now remember, he just lived in a tent. His family were nomads. They were shepherds and they lived in a tent. Now he's coming into this great cities of Egypt and seeing these great scenes. Karen and I had the privilege of visiting Egypt one time in our life. And, uh, and we took some pictures of the pyramids and the camels and so forth. So look back at your screen for a moment. And I'll show you some pictures we actually took. They were riding camels just like they did in Joseph's day. They even wore, a lot of people wore clothes like they would have worn in Joseph's day. And camels were everywhere. And the people riding them. And uh, the pyramids were tremendous things to see. And, and You know, interesting thing is that Karen and I literally... Our eyes looked at those pyramids. The same pyramids that Joseph's eyes looked at some 4,000 years earlier. That's a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? And uh, the pyramids were made over a, a, a long period of time. Some scholars think as long as 1,000 years. There's about 160 pyramids in Egypt. Uh, the greatest of the pyramids... It's called the, uh, the Great Pyramid. It's the largest. And according to Herodias, who was a, um, a Greek historian about 500 years before the time of Christ, according to Herodias, who was one of the, the most prolific ancient historians, the, uh, the, the main pyramid of, of Giza was built over a period of 20 years with 100,000 laborers, slave laborers working on it. But the historians mention nothing about the Hebrew slaves because they were, came later. Uh, and so, and, and then to build all of those pyramids, maybe as much, some scholars think, a thousand years. So he saw these great wonders, these great sights. And the Sphinx was even built before the pyramids. It's a little bit older than the pyramids. You notice they got their nose cut off because when the Arab invaders come in, they broke the noses off the statues to dishonor uh, Egypt and their 
uh, culture and, and so forth. And so he saw these things. God was going to use him in a way he could have never believed living in a tent back in Hebron taking care of sheep. But God always has a wonderful plan for each of us. It may not be big and spectacular, but it's a plan nevertheless, and it's the plan God has for us. That makes it pretty spectacular. Well, come back to your text now. And it says in, in verse 2, the Lord was with him and he was prosperous. We've already talked about that. Verse 3, and his master saw. Notice that word saw. The master saw. It means he looked, he perceived, he understood. His master saw that the Lord was with him. The word Lord there, notice it's all capitals. That means it's, it's the English word to translate the word Jehovah, Yahweh. And so he knew that Yahweh was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in the land. Now, why would he notice that Yahweh was with Joseph? The Egyptians had 2,000 gods and goddesses. They had Apax, the, the bull, and uh, they had, uh, well, 2,000. Anything you needed, they had a god to help take care of that, including they worshipped the Pharaoh himself as a god. And this Hebrew boy believed there's only one god who created the heavens and the earth. And he must have told his master about this one true god. Now, we're going to see in a moment, they apparently become really good friends because uh, Joseph takes over his household, his palace, and runs, every, uh, runs his business. And so somewhere in that friendship, they must have discussed the 2,000 gods of Egypt and the one god of the Bible, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And this man noticed that this God he spoke of must be real because he was with him and made everything he did to prosper. You know, our children need to see that the Lord is with us, don't they? Our grandchildren need to see the Lord is with us. The people we work for, like Potiphar, need to see the Lord is with us. They need to see something different about us as God's people. They're looking. Potiphar was looking and he saw that he was different. And then in verse 4, And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him and made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put into his hand. And it came to pass from that time that he had made him overseer of the house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught he had. He didn't, even, he didn't even know what his book said. He didn't know how much he was worth. He didn't know how much he was taking in in the fields. He just left it all to Joseph. He knew nothing except, it's going to say, Save the bread 
which he did eat. <laughs> That's the only thing he knew about was what they brought to the table for him to eat. Everything else Joseph took care of. And, uh, uh, and Joseph was a god, uh, goodly person and well-favored. Now, that goodly means he was good-looking. And well-favored means he was attractive. Uh, the New King James, for instance, says it like this, I think, if I can remember. It says he was handsome and, and well-built or something like that, I think the New King James says. Most newer translations put it something like that. He was a good-looking young man, along with being so blessed of God in all of his endeavors. Why would God even mention that? Because that leads into the next part of the story. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eye upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. Lie, of course, is a euphemism for sexual activity, just like we use the word sleep. Today, as a euphemism, we might say somebody slept with somebody else. We don't mean they took a nap. And so this is what this means. She said, basically, come sleep with me. Come lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wanteth. The word wanteth there it means, or wanteth means he knows. It's translated in the King James itself over hundreds of times as the word know, to know something. So my master knoweth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is nothing greater in this house than I. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee. In other words, he said, I can enjoy anything of all of Potiphar's riches. Nothing's off limits except you, of course, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Wow. He was a man of integrity. And uh, he not only, he said, I would be doing a great injustice to my master and to you. But more than anything else, it would be a great wickedness in the eyes of God himself. She probably said, nobody will know, we'll make it a secret, we'll be real careful, nobody will know. Everybody does this kind of thing. And while she was saying that with her mouth, Satan was whispering in Joseph's ear, that's right, that's right, nobody will know. It'll be okay. Everybody does it. It's okay. But Joseph said, nobody else may not know, but God will know. And so, verse 10 says, And it came to pass, as she spake with Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie with her or to be with her. So this was an ongoing temptation. I mean, she was after him all the time. And we know Joseph was a young man. And uh, he, had, uh, he had passions. And she may have been a beautiful woman. And uh, this temptation was ongoing. And Joseph, though he was a man of integrity, he was not sinless. He was not above temptation. He was not above sinning. But he was careful and committed to his Lord. He was walking in intimacy with the Lord. 
And notice this last little phrase. And not only he didn't hearken to lie with her or to be with her. That is, she probably figured <coughs> if he wouldn't commit the sin with me, maybe I can talk him into it more gradually. Let's have dinner. Let's go out and drink some coffee. Let's go out after work and have a drink or two. Let's just find a, you know, let's find a kind of a secluded place and let me tell you my problems. Satan's still telling the same lies, isn't he? Satan is after our marriages. He's after us to pull us into sexual sins. And they devastate our lives. They devastate our families. They devastate our marriages. He refused to even be with her. Boy, that was wise. You don't want to start down the trail. You want to stay as far away as possible. Karen and I, one time we're eating out together and we come across someone we knew sitting in a restaurant kind of in the back in a corner in a dark, quiet place. And we knew the woman and she was married and she was sitting here with another man. And, and before we knew it, we said hello, and then we realized we were in a very awkward situation, and the man said he was her pastor, and he was counseling her. Well, they had already fallen into the devil's trap. I mean, they were already in trouble. That should not be. I've taken the policy all of these 45 years of ministry that I do not counsel with a woman by herself, unless Karen, if Karen is with me most of the time, or maybe she's in the very next room, our offices are side by side upstairs. I mean, even in a lit office, I wouldn't be alone with a woman for counseling. Dr. Billy Graham had the same standard, not only for himself, but for everybody in his organization, and still does. That's still the policy of his organization. It's a good policy. It was, by the way, it was Joseph's policy. <laughs> he wouldn't even be with her. He wouldn't spend any time with her. He would avoid her. And I'm, <laughs> I'm spending too much time where I am. <laughs> and, uh, and then notice, and it came to pass, verse 11, about that time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there came, uh, and there was none of the men of the house there within. None of the other servants were in the house. She may have sent them away for this very purpose. And she called him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. He literally turned and ran away. Look at what uh, the New Testament says. Look back at your screen for a moment. And uh, 2 Timothy says, Flee youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, and them that call with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Sometimes you have to flee. You have to run. Sometimes you have to ask your boss if you can change locations in the office. Sometimes you might even have to step away from your job. Because it's best for your family and for your marriage. 
flee fornication. And that's what Joseph did. She kept his coat. Well, you know the rest of the story. She called the servants in then and said, This Hebrew that my husband brought in, now he's made a pass at me and wants me, wanted to lie with me. And uh, I screamed, and when I screamed, he ran away and left his, his coat. And so they all believed her, or at least they seemed that they did. And then when Potiphar got back from his trip, he was out of town. When Potiphar gets back from the trip, she tells him the same lies. And it seems he maybe believes her. Some scholars think that maybe he didn't believe her because he knew her and he knew Joseph. And he didn't have Joseph put to death, which he could have done. Instead, he has him put into a prison. But it's not a prison for slaves. It's a prison for the kings, for, uh, uh, for the upper crust, so to speak, of their society. So some people feel that though Potiphar didn't believe the story for sure, he had to do what his wife wanted done and had to put Joseph away. And maybe he hated to do it because Joseph had been such a blessing to him and to his business and to his home and to all that he had. So he has him put in jail. We come to verse 20 then. And uh, Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound. You see, it's the king's prisoners, not just the slaves and so forth. But the Lord was with Joseph. There it is again, four times in this chapter. Even in prison, the Lord was with him. Wherever Joseph went, whatever hardship he faced, the Lord was with him, and we find him back in the pits again. This time it's the pits of prison. And uh, the Lord was with him and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Now, the keeper of the prison, he was the warden. He was in charge of the prison. And he began to see... By the way, maybe I should have said this up front. These middle years of Joseph, when he's in Potiphar's house and when he's in prison, those, those two situations span 13 years, from 17 to 30 years old. Now, we don't know how they're divided up. We don't know if how long he spent in Potiphar's house or how long he spent in prison. But just for the sake of trying to get some idea, you could divide it in half and maybe six and a half years in each of these places. We don't know how that's divided up. But now... He's in prison, and the warden begins to see what a good man he is. He begins to see, just like Potiphar did, that the Lord was with him. The one true and living God was with him. And notice he says then in verse 22, And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison, and whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. So now he's in charge of the prison. And the warden could kind of sit back and, you know, read stuff online and, you know, do Facebook on his phone and all that kind of stuff while Joseph took care of business. He ran the whole prison. And, uh, and whatever was done, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand because the Lord was with him. There it is again. And that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Wow. The afflictions of life. I had a whole other section here. I'm going to have to stop. Uh, let me 
just see. Put it on my screen, if you would, please. Yeah. We're going to stop right there. Maybe we draw this conclusion together that not only do we all go through trials and tribulations and affliction, but we all go through temptation too. Maybe it's not sexual, though it, in many cases it is. I mean, sexual temptation is everywhere. But maybe it's temptation to be dishonest or to be a racist or to be mean to someone or unkind to people. A temptation to be unfaithful to the Lord. Karen said this morning, we were on our way to church, and there was this squirrel. She was driving, there was this squirrel that ran out like it was going to run in front of us. Then he went back this way, and then this way, and this. He, he must have did that ten times while we were driving by, and just back and forth, back and forth. We didn't hit him. Karen said, that's probably like a lot of Christians today who this morning are saying, I think I'll go to church. No, I don't think I will. It's raining a little bit, and it might rain harder later. No, I think I will. I ought to go. No, I don't think I will go. And back and forth and back and forth. We're tempted to be unfaithful to the things of God. Leave them to somebody else. How can we face temptation with the Lord's strength? Only if we're yielding to Him, yielding to His control, making Him Lord of our lives, and walking with Him in fellowship and communion like Joseph did. These temptations will destroy marriages if we fall into them and destroy homes. You've seen it and I've seen it and it's a tragic thing that happens. Bow with me, please. With our heads bowed, maybe you'd say, Preacher, I want you to pray for me because I'm going through some tribulations, some adversity, some hard times. And I want to go through them like Joseph with the Lord's strength. Pray for me. Would you slip your hands up if that's your prayer this morning? Yes, many hands. Yes, God bless you. I see those hands. God bless you. You may put them down. I don't want you to raise your hand on this, but just in your heart, just between you and the Lord, maybe you'd say, Preacher, pray for me because I'm facing temptation. It's something I need to run from. It's something I need to flee. It's something I need to get away from before the devastation comes. Don't raise your hand, but you know who you are. Father, thank you for our time together. You see our hearts and you know our situations. And I pray for those that are facing temptation today. May there be a fresh yielding to your Lordship, afresh trusting you to fill us and control us and strengthen us against sin. And may we be willing to, like Joseph did, turn and, and flee if need be. I pray for those that raise their hands about affliction and trouble. We live in a troubled, stressful, overwhelming time. I pray for your strength for each one of them. Remind us all that you're on the throne. 
nothing catches you by surprise. And you're big enough to take care of each of us as you took care of Joseph. And that you have a great plan that we may not see or ever understand till we get to heaven. But we can trust you. Comfort them, strengthen them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.